Boston She don't know a soul Funny how fast her half of our possessions Were bundled up a soul Funny how the life we thought we'd made Crumpled with the signing Well, welcome to this week's episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Blake Melnick, and this is the conclusion of our three-part interview with Dr. Tom Carey, part of our innovation series, The Many Faces of Innovation, called Bridging the Gap. In our last episode, Tom and I discussed the difference between entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, the future of learning and work as a result of changes brought about by the pandemic, the importance of context in innovation, and the motivations for innovation. In this episode, we zero in on the specific skills of the innovation-capable graduate. We reimagine work and learning in higher ed in the workplace, the importance of bridging the gap between younger employees and older workers in terms of creating mutually beneficial results for both employees and organizations. And we discuss WinCan, the Workplace Innovation Network for Canada, for what it's worth. To this point, we've talked a lot about innovation and entrepreneurial mindsets, attributes, and so forth. Now I want to talk a little bit more about the hard skills. So I think, for example, lots of people have great ideas. They're just not sure how to articulate these ideas in such a way that the organization or their boss will, number one, pay attention to them, and number two, consider implementing them within the organization. And I think there are certain skills involved in that. So, for example, the ability to develop a case study or a business plan or a proposal to change something with the organization to improve something. This is a skill, correct? Yeah, there's a set of skills there. Yep. So what else is there? We know that innovation-capable people are generally reflective. So is reflection a skill? Is this something that can be taught as a skill? Yes. As a matter of fact, there are researchers who've studied that and how we could teach people to reflect more effectively. It's particularly critical in innovation when things don't work out the way you had planned. How do you respond to that? I was talking to somebody the other day who was describing their post-mortem reflections. After the end of a project, we all sit down and we go through it to see what could we have done differently. And I said to him, have you ever tried a pre-mortem? Before the project starts, you project yourself into the future and you say, now let's think that we're three months out and the project has failed in the sense that we didn't achieve our goals. What might have caused that? What possible scenarios can we come up with? to say three months from now, we're sitting in the room and what might we not have thought of now that we could be thinking about them? And there is a process by which you conduct this pre-mortem to prepare yourself for reflection later on. And that learning to reflect so that you can benefit from all of these experiences to continuously improve your capability. We in higher ed neglect that. And there are folks who are addressing it. There are modules now, the University of Waterloo has one about, doesn't quite say learning from failure, but learning to do better next time is the way it's being framed. And so who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, great point, Tom. I'm a big fan of the postmortem. I call them after action reviews. 
but it's a tried and proven knowledge management strategy. I've used it for years in my practice as part of all the courses that we teach. It was first introduced by the U.S. military to capture knowledge from missions and translate this in the form of lessons learned immediately into practice to protect the lives of service people in future missions. The practice, of course, has been adopted and adapted by corporations around the world to support operational effectiveness, improve training, ensure high levels of safety, which results in less downtime of operational assets and helps to reduce redundancy and repetition of past mistakes, really of critical importance. It seeks to capture knowledge in the form of insights, new learnings, better and more efficient processes from each project and each project team to support future projects and teams. It's designed to close the gap between intended or predicted outcomes and the actual outcomes that were achieved. But in order to be effective, the post-mortem or after-action review needs to be incorporated as the final phase in all major projects. It needs to be part of the project closeout report so that it becomes part of institutional memory and it's the first thing a project team looks to review prior to starting a new project, particularly if the project is similar in nature to prior ones. So they look at the after-action review post-mortem, and what a great idea to incorporate a pre-mortem in that process as well. This would effectively make the activity both reflective and predictive at the same time. And of course, conducting a post-mortem or a pre-mortem is a skill-based activity. There is a process involved in that, and maybe we can post some of that information up on our blog page so people can have a look at it. But I've written a complete guide on doing after-action reviews, which walks people through the process to do it really effectively to ensure that lessons learned from the post-mortem or the after-action review find their way into a revision in an organization's policies and standard operating procedures. Because the biggest challenge with this whole process, and there are companies that do it extraordinarily well, but where I find a lot of organizations fall short is they're good at recognizing what went right and what went wrong in a project. They're good at documenting deficiencies and problems and issues. But where they tend to fall down is they don't take those lessons learned and immediately update their standard operating procedures. Companies really need to be updating their standard operating procedures and policies after each one of these formal after-action reviews or pre-action reviews Otherwise, there becomes this massive disconnect and the standard operating procedures don't reflect how work is actually getting done in the organization. There's been a lot written about reimagining the future of learning and work. And we've talked about this to a fair degree too, Tom. And the pandemic is obviously forcing us all to think about this. And there's been a lot written about, quote unquote, the great resignation, that everybody's resigning because they're unhappy with work or with the work that they've been doing. Is this a reality or is there something else at play here? It's interesting that the data from Canada and the data from the U.S. are quite different. So, yes, it seems to be a bigger phenomenon in the U.S. And in the U.S. data that I've seen, it seems to be twice as likely for women to be expressing those kinds of feelings about not going back to work and the stresses of work and so on. Twice as many women expressing those as men, which 
people whose views I value and respect are attributing to the lack of good child care and the kinds of pressures that kids have been at home learning. And it's not a choice for me. If I am going to manage my family, I can't be out and working in anything like the way that I was before. So there's a lot of social factors tied into that. And certainly places like restaurants are finding that if the culture of the restaurant was all about getting high performance, high speed, high pressure, and that wasn't accompanied by profit sharing, scheduling people shifts two weeks in advance and sticking to them, all of those things that might contribute to a family-friendly, life-friendly workplace. If you didn't offer that, and now people have had a chance to sit back and reflect and not just rush off to work every day, yeah, they're now realizing, hey, maybe there are better ways to do this. But the restaurants who have always involved their staff in decision-making have always treated them as professionals with very valuable skills, not assembly line workers who could easily be replaced, have retained their staff. So it would seem that there are a host of different social factors coming into play, and people are reflecting, contemplating the nature of their lives, the nature of work, what they want from their jobs, what will fulfill them in their lives. And I also think there's a certain amount of disenfranchisement, too, as a result of advances in technology, and people are feeling left behind. So here's my question. In the context of creating better work, whether that be in higher ed, the workplace, within your local community, what are the opportunities at this point in time, based on everything we've talked about, what are the opportunities facing us to create better work? I think, as you're saying, one of the main themes of the discussion has been how do you engage your employees in creating work that's better for the organization in terms of performance, whatever your mission is, and better for the employees at the same time. I saw some numbers yesterday from my colleagues in Europe who have been the leaders on this for a variety of sociological reasons. And they're now saying 20% of our workplaces are really capitalizing on employee-led workplace innovation to achieve those twin goals of improved organizational performance and improved quality of work. Now, they said that, Blake, as a negative, only Mm. 20%. I looked at it from a perspective and said, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it kind of depends where you are, whether that's a good number or not. But that's enough for me to say, yes, this can be done. And I'm assuming we can talk about the same thing in the context of higher education. We've talked a lot about the need to bridge the gap between learning and work, to not treat these as separate domains. And this, of course, is one of the big ideas behind the founding of WinCan, the need for a new education model that sees the classroom as the workplace, where students in the classroom work alongside their counterparts in business and industry to help advance solutions to complex innovation challenges, which impact us all. Things like climate, food, water, socioeconomic disparity, These are big, complex, innovation-type challenges. Can we apply the same kind of rethink that's going on in workplaces to learning institutions? Yes, and how do we, as you said, how do we, on the one hand, introduce more learning into work, and on the other hand, help students to see themselves as workers? And that's a real challenge for higher ed. Mm -hmm to say, how do we give the students that voice? And one of the things we've done when we looked over all these characteristics that would create the right climate, the right culture for an innovative workplace, how do we do that now in teaching and learning in higher ed? Mm -hmm. When the whole scheme now is set up, we have a set of experts who traditionally stand at the front of the classroom and mentor students with the expertise. But we know that those people aren't always experts in learning. 
Right. They may be experts in accounting or microbiology or whatever, but they're not always experts in how this work of learning could be best carried out. So we face huge challenges in higher ed in responding to students who aren't like us as instructors. Right. We're very good at teaching people who think exactly the way we do. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. You and I have been working on an older workers study in which we're attempting to address a problem or challenge, which is the disenfranchisement of the older worker. But it's also about creating the opportunity to bring together the enthusiasm, digital skills of the young employee or young learner with the wisdom, know-how, experience of the older worker. Again, to create better work and better learning. Let's talk about that. We've been working with uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Workforce Innovation Center to try to bring some of the research on workplace innovation into their project on working better with age. Like many regional and geographic areas, the demographics of the workforce in Newfoundland and Labrador are concerning to the provincial government and the larger economic and social development. We have an aging workforce and we need to find a way to retain workers longer, which means we need a way to engage them and give them much more satisfying workplace experiences. So all of that, of course, ties into this notion that employees in our workforce can create better jobs for themselves at the same time as creating jobs that are better from the employer's point of view in terms of performance. We have shared with our colleagues in Newfoundland some of the research on older workers engaging in job crafting, some of the age-related differences in the drivers of workplace creativity. Some of the stigmas and discrimination that older workers experience when an innovation project comes up and it's assumed that, oh, you've got gray hair or like me, no hair. Obviously, <laughs> you wouldn't be someone we'd put on an innovation project. All of those things are now coming to the surface. And one of the authors that I was reading in the U.S. has said we have a bit of a asked system with various classes the one cast that we all want to belong to is the old age class. <laughs> uh, and so we should do a bit more thinking about how we deal with those economic and demographic and social challenges. There's a kind of classic paper about this from Europe, workplace innovation practices as an effective response to older workers' needs. But that could also be the company's needs because they need to retain those older workers. And in the case of Newfoundland, they're even looking at how do we recruit people who've already left the workforce to come back and contribute. Yeah, so we're really looking forward to that project. And the folks in the Newfoundland Labrador Workforce Innovation Center are just a wonderful gang to work it's so important because there's so much knowledge in the heads of older workers and we don't want to see that go away but we also need to be aware that this is an opportunity for a knowledge transfer and a collaboration yeah. between both the older worker and the younger worker that benefits both benefits the organization and of course benefits society as a whole so I, we're approaching the end of our our time here tom but i did want to discuss wincan workplace innovation network for canada this is a not-for-profit that you and I worked together to form just at the beginning of the pandemic. Let's talk about the vision and mission and mandate for WinCan so that people can get involved and potentially come and join us in our various projects. So certainly the vision is of more innovative workforce within Canada. So we deliberately said Workplace Innovation Network for Canada as opposed to a Workplace Innovation Network in Canada. We are really driving that, but of course we're working closely with 
with our colleagues in Europe, in Australia, and the U.S. And one of the distinctive things about WinCan is that we are approaching it with both higher education partners and workplace partners. The twin mission that you stated earlier, that we work with higher ed partners to ensure every graduate is innovation capable. We work with workplace partners to ensure that every employee can engage with innovation in the workplace and have some appropriate level of comfort for them and for their job responsibilities. We're currently working with four workplace organizations, have networks of workplaces that they are directly working with. One is one of Canada's sector councils that works on human resource planning within a particular sector, in this case, the electricity sector. We're working with one educational institution that is trying to figure out how can we work with our employers and people who employ our graduates on these emerging capabilities. Things, as we've just been discussing, aren't really well pinned down or specified. That's a particular challenge for our education because we might have a co-op program where the largest co-op employers help us to shape, here's what we need for today's jobs. We might have a program advisory committee of experts from the workplace who say, here's what the people we are and have to be able to do. But when we're dealing with a capability like workplace innovation, where our workplace partners are learning to be surprised at this as they go in the same way we are, we need different kinds of structures to build those partnerships and we need different kinds of people. We found this when we were working Blake Ontario Skills Catalyst Fund grant that we invited to the table a group of leading edge innovation project leaders who were absolutely wonderful. We didn't have at the table the HR folk who were concerned with policy and how do we encourage, support, recognize, and reward innovative behaviors. You and I wrote a blog post about that for our wing cancer. Right. So we're working with a set of workplace partners, but we're also working with the higher ed partners to say, we need to figure this out together. We in higher ed have opportunities to develop those capabilities in our students and in some cases for them to serve as catalysts in the workplace as a way to move some of these leading edge ideas on the research side into the practice side. And and so the role of the network is that of a catalyst to bring together workplace partners that may have a complex challenge that they require some help solving and we certainly have a team of dedicated researchers in various parts of the world, not just in Canada, that can help with that. But also we're trying to develop new models for work and for learning and providing access to research as we go. I think it's important to state that that WinCan is a not-for-profit and again designed partly as Tom suggests to um, address Canada's lagging capabilities within innovation. We spend a lot of money and invest a lot through government agencies and grants and so on and so forth into increasing Canada's capacity for innovation but the results have been lackluster and, and that's certainly been supported by data from the conference board of Canada. We're trying to address that problem. I think Tom and I and others recognize that it's one thing, and I think this is why the conversation of the difference between invention and innovation becomes important, because we tend to fund invention and we tend to be very technology focused. But if we want to systemically increase the country's capability for innovation that actually has an economic impact in terms of our GDP, that helps promote Canadian 
IP, if you wish, that we have to do something that is far deeper. And we have to connect academia and the workplaces. We have to build in those capabilities for innovation within our graduates and within our employees so that every time they go out and join their respective organizations, they're actually helping that larger vision or mandate to improve Canada's overall capacity and capability for innovation. I think we want to encourage people to come join WinCan. Do you want to provide mm-hmm. some information how they people can follow up and find out more and engage? Yeah, so uh, certainly they can look on our website, which is just wincan.ca, and uh, you can see some of the projects and other things that are happening there, and there's a way to contact us on that site. Terrific. And uh, is there anything else you want to say about some up-and-coming projects that people might be interested in becoming part of or we have a need for either workplaces or for researchers? Yeah, so certainly on that project on how we meet the needs of older workers, that's one that's coming to the fore. I think the work that we've been doing on the gentle on-ramp, if your company or public sector agency is concerned about how do we engage every employee? How do we provide opportunities there so that every employee feels they're part of this? And it's not like the innovation's being done by that group over there and we couldn't possibly be a part of it. If you really want that culture of employee engaging with innovation, we'd love to talk to you because that's where we're headed. Similarly, if you are involved in higher ed and you want to see how We could use our own workplace for learning to help our students prepare for more innovative workplaces and be agents of change in those workplaces. And there's some work we're doing that you would no doubt be interested in. This is a final word. As uh, listeners of the show know, we are starting a new innovation series called The Many Faces of Innovation. And this is really the kickoff to that. We have a bunch of really interesting innovators coming on the show to discuss their innovations, their ideas, their motivations, and their success stories. Our guests come from multiple fields of endeavor, and this series supports the work of WinCan. WinCan is a sponsor for the Many Faces of Innovation, and we'll hope you'll tune in for this series. There's going to be some really interesting stories, some first-hand case study examples of people who have developed those skills, mindsets, experiences, and knowledge that have allowed them to become innovators. Tom, again, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I find our conversations deeply engaging, and I always leave with lots more I want to ask. Thanks again for all the work you do around improving our country's innovation capability, and I look forward to having you back on the show again in the very near future. All right. Thanks, Blake. I look forward to it. This concludes our three-part interview with Tom Carey, which marks the launch of our new innovation series, The Many Faces of Innovation. For the next episode, we're turning our attention to the space in between and our Pass the Jam series with an episode called Song Food, a musical interlude featuring the work of Canadian music icon, singer-songwriter Blair Packham. And following this episode, Blair will be joining me as a co-host for the passing of the jam to our next artist in residence, the musical virtuoso Heather Gimmel. So make sure you stay tuned for that, for what it's worth. Should be laughing, but...